Okay, we're here on the Falls Cast with a good friend of the Falls Free Press, and in fact, one of the co-founders of the Falls Free Press. It was not too long ago, maybe just a couple of years ago, that myself and Mr. James Lloyd Davis met at Eddie's Deli on Oakwood Drive to discuss the possibility of a local free press in Cuyahoga Falls. And lo and behold, we made it happen. Uh, Mr. Davis is back with us today to talk about um, probably a variety of things, but um, not least of which will be um, his new collection of short stories entitled Shrapnel, um, which he's just finished getting published and uh, which the public is now able to get a hold of and read for themselves. Jim, if I may, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, absolutely. Glad to be here. So I, I want to talk about the book, obviously. Um, it's I've read uh, about, I don't know, a fourth to a third of it or something like that by now. I've um, got a pretty good taste for it. I had read some of your work before, um, and I don't know if the couple stories I read before were are, are included in or not, but um, you have a very interesting background, um, and I'd like to maybe just explore that for a little while before we jump too heavily into the into the book, if that's okay. Sure. So you're not originally from Cuyahoga Falls. Can you tell us about kind of where you come from and, and a little bit of your story? Well, I was born in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, raised in Norfolk, Virginia. I spent uh, the first 16 to 18 years uh, right on uh, the Chesapeake Bay in one way or another. We had a house on a beach there, so that was kind of paradise. Uh I've lived all over the country, worked all over the country, and uh, it's really, uh, that's quite a story in itself. Uh, I've been, uh, I've had uh, multiple careers, uh, worked uh, just about every job you can imagine. I spent uh, some time working as a uh, uh, director for a homeless shelter in Texas. I've worked at... uh, the biosphere as a in Arizona uh, when it was under the auspices of uh, uh, Columbia University in New York. Uh, I was a director of the facility and uh, pretty much uh, did uh, all the engineering background maintenance and ran the show. That was a that was a fun job. Sounds amazing. Yeah, quite a bit of fun. Uh, I've been uh, a tradesman in several trades. I spent about 18 years working in the shipyards. I worked in heavy industry as an electrician, industrial electrician. Uh, you name it, I've done it. Is there a reason for that? I mean, do you, do you just get bored easily? or I mean, <laughs> Well, no, actually, it came a necessity. Uh, I started out. So, well, I, I, I'm a veteran. I, I was over in Vietnam. I came back to the States. Uh, finding a job was a little difficult at first because I basically didn't have a trade. Uh, I started to go to college when I moved up here to Cleveland. Uh, maybe about, uh, that would have been about 1969, I think. And uh, I went to... While I was working as a uh, in a warehouse, an electrical warehouse uh, downtown Cleveland, I uh, went to uh, Tri C on uh, the downtown campus. Took a lot of courses. Started uh, pre-engineering courses at Tri C, 
And just about the time I was supposed to go to uh, <coughs> University of Cleveland, Cleveland University, CSU, uh, I couldn't afford it. So I had to find something. I was married, uh, had a couple of kids, and I had to uh, get a job that paid some money and found a job out in Lorain, Ohio, and a shipyard out there. I'd worked in the shipyard in Virginia before I came up here, so I had a little bit of experience. That that pretty much uh, is where it started. And when the shipyard had died out, I had to do something. So I took what I knew about uh, engineering. I, I got a job in, in a uh, plant in Texas, for instance, as a... Uh, as an industrial electrician and did design work and and most of the engineering for the place as well so so you moved all the way from cleveland to texas for that job well actually if 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 i was to give you an itinerary it was uh uh north of virginia to vietnam to california to virginia to ohio to virginia uh, to Florida, to Virginia, <laughs> and then uh, Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, et cetera. Wow. More or less following the work, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was a different time, too. And I mean, I think that, um, you know, particularly in the 60s, following the Vietnam War, there was a sense that, you know, people needed to go to college, but it wasn't the kind of like uh, prescribed necessity that it is now in terms of finding work i mean uh, a lot of people in the baby boomer generation um had parents who worked in industry without any kind of formal training um outside maybe of military service um so yeah it, it really was a time when you could uh uh you could live by your wits so to speak and if you could uh, grasp the concept if you could do the work it didn't matter if you had the paper uh, there was always people around with certifications. Like, for instance, I, I could turn in an engineering project and have somebody else's name on it. I'd get the money, I'd get uh, the job, uh, but, you know, I didn't get the credit, essentially. But at one time, uh, I, I did have several engineers working for me. Wow. So you uh you joined which branch of the service did you join up with i was in the navy yeah in the navy and you you left from norfolk um were you uh of age because there were a lot of i know there were a lot of people um who joined up with the military around vietnam um kind of to get away um and many of them weren't even 18 yet when they joined up my father's actually one of these people yeah i i was uh, already in the navy and uh, over in uh, japan when the war started, uh, I, I went in at 17. I was a high school dropout. Went in at 17, and uh, I was there waiting when it started. So within a week after the Tonkin Gulf incident, I was down there. Wow. And what did you do um, in the war? I mean, which is to say, I mean, obviously, <laughs> tell us what you want to tell us. What did you do in the war, Daddy? Uh I was on a, a tin can, a, a destroyer, and uh, we did. Uh, we were over there for a good two years, eighteen months of which we spent uh, in operations in and around Vietnam. Uh, 
we did uh, coastal shelling. We did. Uh, we went up the Saigon River. We did uh, support artillery support, basically for Marine Corps and uh, and for the Vietnamese. Wow. We did just about everything. We we searched uh, ships. We uh, we were involved in coordinating the first uh, what they call the Brownwater Navy. We were a, we were a flagship for the uh, for the uh, actually they had Coast Guard and uh, boats not unlike uh, PT boats that uh, did a lot of the uh, river work in those days and. We were involved in that. We were in every core area in Vietnam. Wow. Well, you do have one hell of a story um, just about your life, but you obviously have um, quite a knack for telling stories also. Um, and that's what you spent, I, I guess, a number of years now um, concentrating on. Um, you're working on a novel, as I understand it, in addition to having published uh, Shrapnel. Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, I did Shrapnel. I put that together as an anthology and uh, edited for, you know, all the stories again, uh, just for that uh, anthology. Uh, it was kind of an introduction into what I was uh, using as a, as a publishing source, which is KDP Amazon. I I wanted to learn the process and and uh, it was quite an experience. Awesome. Yeah, now everybody can go and find Shrapnel on Amazon as a Kindle book um, or actually order a paper copy as well. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I just found out today that it's available in France, Australia, and wherever. Awesome. So essentially, I'm everywhere. Well, that's great. Finally. Well, you're 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 a you're a city treasure for sure, and um and I can say that because I've read some of this work now. Um, you know, let's talk about some of these stories and about sort of your writing um, a little more in depth, perhaps. Um, you know, I I find it really cool that you begin the the book with knitting the unraveled sleeves. Um, it's a normal kind of length of a short story. Yeah. Um, so you're able to kind of really get to know the characters and, um, you have these, uh, these, these, uh, returning, um, tropes throughout the story, um, it calls to mind Kurt Vonnegut, um, the knit pearl, knit pearl, um, bit that you use throughout the story. Um, but one thing I found in knitting the unraveled sleeves and almost every story up until um, John Garfield died for our sins. Um, basically every one of those stories um, deals in some significant way with death. And if I, if I were a, uh, a, a scholar of, of psychoanalytic criticism, um, I might say that you have sort of a, a death infatuation or something. Now I, I obviously don't know what's, <laughs> what's inside your head, but, but can you talk a little bit about that? Because I mean, obviously we've all experienced a lot of death and some more than others, but there is in each one of those stories quite a bit surrounding, you know, this theme. Yeah. I, I suppose that, uh, one of the greatest themes that we have in our lives and not so much in terms of art, but in terms of our life is coming to grips with, with uh, 
mortality, really. I, you know, if you stop and think of it, uh, most of us don't think about it. We don't face it. So when we finally come up and, and you know, come up broadside with it, it's quite a shock. It really is. And if you want to put it in terms of, uh, you know, I never thought of it that way. I probably do have a rather more outlook in some aspects. <laughs> it's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing. I mean, I think that there's like what you're saying, what you said just before right now um, is is true. I mean, you know, there is a certain acceptance that takes time and the sorts of people who don't experience a significant amount of death in their lives are that much more moved by it when it when it you know when it affects them personally like when they lose somebody very close to them or something um but like a lot of people and i would include myself in this category you know lose a lot of people throughout their lives i can remember being a young child going to funerals and just lots of people close to me and so it's something that doesn't have the same kind of impact on me that i think it would you know somebody else um, so it could just be that you've experienced it a lot. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me put it in this way. Uh, it It's a personal affront to know that you're going to die. And, and you don't come to that realization until maybe some situation uh, where you actually have to face it. I can tell you a story. Please do. When I was in the Navy, uh, and specifically over uh, in the South China Sea, uh, one time uh, we answered a distress call from a uh, French tanker. It was it was the uh, motor vessel Arsenal. They were they had run into a uh, uh, half submerged coral reef. Uh, it was called Scarborough Shoals. And they were taking on water, and they had managed somehow to keep the, keep the ship uh, bow on into the reef and afloat. And they were looking for somebody to come and help them uh, maybe back off the reef. Uh, we were the first ship on the scene, so naturally we sent a group over there. And... I was one of the crew that volunteered to go. I was bored out of my skull at that particular time. I mean, 18 years old. And uh, I thought it would be a real thrill. So we went over there in a small whaleboat and climbed up the side of the ship on a Jacob's Ladder, they call it. And uh, we were on the ship uh, while our ship, the USS Higby, it was, uh, tried to send over a uh, hawser, the biggest one we had, which was about an inch and a quarter thick. And uh, they were going to back off and uh, try to pull at the same time that the arsenal was going to reverse her engines, and maybe uh, that was enough to get her off of the reef. At which point uh, she could be, she could limp back to, say, Shanghai or someplace. Uh, turned out I, I was on the deck, on the on the main deck at the time, and I was in earshot of the uh, of of the wheelhouse. And 
I heard uh, the captain say, you know, uh, give directions, and he was, what he was doing, he was telling the helmsman to try to go right or left, right or left, really quickly. And I guess his theory was that while we were pulling and while they had their engines in reverse, if he could just kind of fishtail, they could work off the reef. And it was working for a little bit. The only thing was, he went uh, the wrong way once and they didn't recover and the hawser broke and the ship went broadside to to the reef. I was standing on the deck and, and it felt like King Kong picked up the ship and just beat it on the rocks, you know? Jeez. Scared the daylights out of me. And uh, our ship sent over a motor uh, whaleboat again, and they were going to try to get us off the ship. They wanted the, the Hapey crew to come off first, and then they were going to get the uh, French crewmen off there. So we had to jump in the water. And we, we, before we could dive off the side, uh, I guess somebody came out of the engine room. Somebody told me it was the, uh, the uh, chief engineer. And he jumped over the side. And we could see that he was dragged over the coral and he was killed. And uh, we had to jump in the water and they were going to, you know, pick us up on the water uh, from the motor whaleboat. And I jumped in the water, and I remember it it seemed like it took about five minutes <laughs> to come to the surface because as I went down, uh, the water was coming up. There were, there were heavy waves, uh, probably about six to eight feet. And uh, when I surfaced, I could see that the guy in the motor whaleboat, our bosun mate, was pulling cord on the engine. The engine died. And I, we were getting sucked along the side of the ship and headed for that reef where that, that engineer just died. And they couldn't get the motor whaleboat started. And I was thinking to myself, geez, this is it. This is it. My God. Uh, but, you know, I've had a couple of instances in my life where I've had to actually look at death coming. Uh, I've seen a lot of people pass away around me. So I guess I have a familiarity that, that many people don't have. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I did wonder that. I mean, a lot of times, and you, maybe you can res respond to this too, um, if you talk to an author directly and you, you ask them too much about the story, like, what did you mean? What does this mean? What are you trying to do here? A lot of times authors, and sometimes it's a cop-out and sometimes it isn't, will just say, well, I don't know, it's just a story. I wrote a story. I, I, I can't tell you, you know, really what's going on there. You just have to read the story and decide for yourself. Like a poet saying, you know, it means whatever it means to you, right? Um, yeah, or it is what it is. Right. And so do you feel that way or do you, or, or do you feel like you're especially I think, I think every author, I you know, I... Consciously or unconsciously, they they have to draw. It, it, if there is anything in the story that actually has a ring of sincerity to it, you know that that some element of that story is experience. 
I mean, you can have the best imagination in the world, and you know, some of the most imaginative work is is good to read simply because of the flight of fantasy. But when it comes down to the writing itself, the ability to convey uh, even something that's made up, uh, you have to have some element of a personal experience uh, in order for it to really ring true. That's what I feel about it. Yeah, there's actually um, a, a critical theorist named Frederick Jameson who talks about the political unconscious and how sometimes the systems that are depicted in stories, whether they're, you know, whether it's something that takes place during the Great Depression or um, some, you know, futuristic dystopia or something um, are pulled from a political unconscious versus just, you know, um, unconscious sort of instances of experience that drive the work in a certain way. When you get down to the mechanics, though, when you get to the point where you're actually conveying the story through the eyes of uh, the narrative, narrator, or or even if the narrator is is uh, giving you a third person description, uh, in order for that description to have some element of truth, no matter where the setting is, I mean, you can be talking about. Uh, uh, the future you can be talking about say outer space somewhere but there is still the human interaction with with the uh, with the uh, circumstances and the events within the story uh, they have to be true they have to ring true they have to feel human and the best way to to learn how to do that the best way to learn how to experience that is to draw on your personal uh, experience. So you're saying even if I wrote a, a science fiction story um, in a universe that didn't yet exist, the relationships between the people would still have to come from my own frame of reference? I, I think so, yeah. I think so. Imagination goes so far. It's a beautiful thing, and but it only goes so far. You You have to be able to to give some element of truth to it. Right on. Personally, uh, you know, you go to the front front of the uh, book. Uh, I I quoted a little poem there. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and uh, I personally believe that fiction is probably more truthful than nonfiction because the narrator is actually separate, or the author is actually separated from the story. In other words, you don't have to inject your own uh, personality into the story. The story, uh, you can write about anything and nobody's going to come back and say, what, you did that? You know, there's no uh, personal responsibility. So you can be eminently truthful in fiction where you can't be in nonfiction. Yeah, I mean, it's the same way with poetry, right? Like you can't, infer the speaker's voice upon the author you know um i don't think that that's the same in songwriting it can be um but in poetry and in fiction i think it's true that you know the narrator is not the author we we can't assume that it is anyway unless the author tells exactly. us explicitly that it exactly is. 
So I I didn't look it up, and I just want to know, because it seems to me like that poem might be E.E. Cummings. Am I right about that? No, it's mine. (laughs) Oh, it's yours. Okay. Well, it rings rings early 20th century um, modernism to me, which I personally like. So um, it's a good one. Um, That's probably where my mind resides anyway. Yeah. (laughs) I – you know your style is is in that is in that canon for sure. Um so I think knitting the unraveled sleeves is a really interesting story. Um are you a fan of Vonnegut because like I said that knit pearl knit pearl thing I think is really interesting and that's something I mean obviously a lot of authors do that but Vonnegut, you know, saying so it goes over and over again. Um, things yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Knitting the Unraveled Sleeves is, is really interesting. And again, I thought it was a great opener to the book because, um, you know, you go through an 18-page short story and then you run into a series of stories that are actually really short. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that because, like, you know, you look at, like, The Lady in White, which is a little less than three pages, The Color of Mangoes, less than two pages, Pain Endured. Um, a little over three pages. I mean, really, everything is pretty short until you get up to um, John Garfield Died for Our Sins. Um, and that's kind of where I leave off. Um, but I wondered if you could talk about that, because these almost read like asides, um, but they they retain your voice in a way that's really, I think, elegant. Um, and I wanted to hear what you had to say about kind of decisions as far as like, did you feel any pressure ever to develop these stories, or did they just kind of come out and you were like, well, that that's what it's going to be? Well, we're talking about, uh, this is 50 years worth of writing. Uh, for instance, uh, The Lady in White goes back to 1973. Uh, the Color of Mangoes, 2003. Pain Endured, that, that's only five years old. Uh, Waycross, Georgia was only two years ago, I think. Uh, you know, it, there's been lately in literary magazines a tendency to uh, show more uh, appreciation for shorter pieces. So, I, you know, I like writing shorter pieces, actually. I, I really enjoy it. I, I consider it uh, a form of its own. Of course, they call it flash fiction. Short shorts, whatever. Yeah, I've heard micro. I've heard microfiction. Yes, yes, that too. I have one story in there that's probably uh, no more than a hundred and some words. But uh, I think sometimes the more compact the story, the more compelling. Sometimes. Yeah, I think that's true, and I find it interesting that these stories are um, so disparate in terms of when they were written because they do they do lock together pretty well. Um, maybe that's a, 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 a symptom of them having been edited all for this collection or, or, or really just a continuity of your voice. Uh, you're obviously a very mature writers, so I'm sure that's a, a big part of it. Um, did you feel that way writing it or did you feel, or were you worried that it would seem disjointed? No, I never worried about it at all. Uh, I tried to, uh, put them together in such a sense that that you weren't disjointed going from one story to another. In other words, I tried to develop some sort of of emotional flow between one story and the other. Uh, I didn't want to put in something that was going to suddenly put up a, a, a red light and say, whoa, back off, you know. 
Yeah. I like continuity. Uh, I prefer writing novels. Now that now that I'm doing that uh, all the time, I, I really uh, I probably never write another short story again. Wow, interesting. Um, so, can you tell us? I mean, are you working on more than one novel, or or one at a time, or? Uh, I'll be honest. I've written about. 10 in varying and well not not all 10 are completed let me put it that way i would say three of them are ready for with you know minor edits here and there uh ready for publication uh the others are in varying stages of, of completion a few of them just uh exist as a, a few paragraphs and outline hmm. uh but I, I can probably put out uh, two or three a year from this point forward. Wow. So you say you have one forthcoming. Can you give us a, a, a taste of, of what we might be in for? Uh, it, it's the one book I've written that, that uh, I can't disclose what the ending is. Uh, I can tell you that it's set in the 1960s primarily. It's, uh, it's, it's about someone who's involved in uh, some criminal activities uh, and they get involved with other people who are involved in in uh, foreign interventions um, by way of the CIA and so on and so forth. And it also touches on, on some of the uh, mafia world, the underworld. But uh, this one person kind of links the whole story together and it moves towards a specific event. But the character himself, he is the story. It's the story of his life. That's awesome. He basically starts out as, as uh, a military man. He is, uh, he is in the Korean War. And when he comes back, he gets involved with somebody. Uh, actually, this is where we get into historical context because... Have you ever heard of Frank Sturgis? That name sounds really familiar, but I couldn't I couldn't tell you why. He was one of the, one of the Watergate burglars, by the way. Okay. And I actually met the man when he had a bar in uh, in I think it was uh, downtown Norfolk. Huh. When they had a Main Street, and uh, they they he owned two bars. I think he had the Peppermint Lounge and. Virginia Beach and in that bar in downtown Norfolk, but I I didn't know him. I just happened to meet him once, and you know, he turns out he had a very fascinating life. Uh, he was involved with Cuba. Uh, he actually worked for Castro when Castro was in the mountains. Uh, he worked against Castro uh, for most of his life. Uh, he was a uh, policeman once in Norfolk, and he quit that because they were crooks. He 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 had a very uh, he had a lot of integrity. He was a real true believer. Anyway, they, Frank Sturgis is depicted fictionally there, but uh, he's he's key to the story. It's very. Very complex story, but I'm enjoying you know the way it's turning out. That's cool. It reminds me of a story, and I honestly, I I want to say it's Don DeLeo's Libra. Somewhat in that vein, but not quite. Uh, it's more centric to uh, 
New York City, Greenwich Village. The, the main character actually lives in Greenwich Village. And uh, he's more involved with uh, the mafia than with the CIA. He, his connection to the CIA is through uh, these Sturgis-like characters. Oh, that's cool. So when you were um, beginning to promote your novel on or your collection of short stories here on social media, you had um, some words about kind of your, your thinking about um, great fiction. Um, and I, I teased you a little bit on there about um, your, your words regarding science fiction and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I just, I, I don't want to revisit that necessarily, but you had some very interesting ways of talking about what you think makes great fiction um, and what you tried to do in order to live up to that in, in the short story. Do you remember that? Do you want to talk about that? Well, you know, in terms of, uh, you're talking about genre. And and when you get into that, uh, it's a matter of personal preference. Story is is really the, the prime element in, in literature. Story is it. Uh, you know, uh, where you set it, in, and and how you go about uh, uh, your evolution of that story and how you present it, it, it that of course is, is style. But uh, it's always a matter of personal preference as to how it's done, where it's set, and so on and so forth. You know, it, there can be great, like for instance, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Isaac Asimov. Uh, Ray Bradbury have written masterpieces yeah. in science fiction. Uh, you know, the, this, that I don't consider personally criticizing that. I just make fun of it from time to time. Right. <laughs> Simply because I can. <laughs> ah, the power of social media. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. A, a giant yeah. megaphone. Um, but but I I do get a little irked sometimes with uh, some of the some of what seems to be selling it. You know, it 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 gets on my nerves. Let me put it that way. Maybe that's age. I don't know. But zombie novels, come on. <laughs> well, I you know from a perspective of like a critic, you know there are certain ways in which novels like that can be, um, you know. Uh, allegories um in ways that i think are valuable to the culture there's there's certainly a critical mass that happens with that type of literature as well um that we see in how it spreads to other media like you know the prevalence of those kinds of um, tropes in television series and films and whatever um you know that go back to um you know like uh what's his name richard matheson um, in the sixties, um, if we're looking at that kind of thing and science fiction that's so old continues to pervade, um, contemporary media. But I, I think, and this reminds me kind of the conversation we were having earlier about, you know, letting your experiences fuel your fiction, um, regardless of where and when they're set, um, because that's, what's going to make it seem authentic. Um, it sort of seems like you're saying the same thing about genre genre doesn't doesn't accentuate or preclude the quality of, of your, of your work. Um, but it can get in the way when it's, uh, you know, all you see everywhere. 
Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I can, I can digress and I do often, you know, from, uh, from actually, I don't, I don't know how you would call it. Let's say, let's say regular life, normal life, normal experience. Uh, you know, people work for a living, people raise families, uh, they live, they die. And, you know, these are human experiences. And, uh, when we begin to go to the fantastic, fantastical world where we begin to talk about uh like like it's popular today superheroes i i can't i can't uh bend my mind in that direction i can't go there uh for whatever reason but i can i can really relate to uh what's been called magical realism in literature especially from uh south america mexico and so on some real masters down there but uh when it when it comes to well when you when you think about that you're thinking about uh spiritual aspects of life i guess uh the spiritual experience rather than the physical experience so you know i suppose i can get into that to a certain extent uh because i can relate to it personally and but when people uh, begin to develop uh, worlds that are not really allegories for what we exist in today or what we know as human beings, what we understand, uh, it, it gets beyond my ken. I don't get it. Well, I think context is so important, too. I mean, you know, you talk about somebody like Marquez and you know, reading, um, 100 years of solitude, um, magical realism is, 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 it can be a tough nut to crack, um, for a new reader, you know? Um, but we have authors in, um, you know, American authors even who, um, who write stories that are, um, as fantastic without being magical. I'm thinking of like, um, somebody like Thomas Pynchon, um, you know, it's 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 just as difficult to sort of wrap your head around but in a really in a way that's really rewarding when you when you put in the work to do it and i think that's just kind of you know the 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 <laughs> straddling the line between modernism and postmodernism in in literature um so yeah well I, it may be a generational thing too because you have to remember the generation that i grew up in intellectually is the same uh, generation where uh, one of the big uh, one of the big to dos was about uh, uh, the Don Juan series. Uh, uh, the uh, I can't remember Cat, Carlos Castaneda. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know. Familiar with that? I, I'm actually not. I mean, I know the name, but I've never read any of his work. Um, I mean, I think generational is certainly accurate. I mean, because you know literature has movements um that are generally reactionary so i mean yeah the whole point yeah. of modernism was to set literature apart from you know popular print culture like virginia wolf and um james joyce didn't want their work to be considered alongside you know magazines and penny novels you know um so i think that their insistence upon making literature something you had to kind of work for <laughs> as a reader yeah what i consider to be great literature 
is literature that virtually anybody can walk into. Uh, something that, that strikes a common chord with, with uh, you know, essential human experience, so to speak. That, that's what I call great literature. Yeah, I, I understand experimentation and I, under, I, I understand that people find uh, new language, new reference uh, in, in different, uh, different kinds of writing, different kinds of uh, genre, if you will. Uh, but, you know, as long as it has that essential tie to human experience, uh, it's literature as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So um, you're here on the Falls cast with us. We like to engage our guests in um, a little bit of discussion about Cuyahoga Falls area. How, how'd you end up in Cuyahoga Falls um, specifically? Well, after uh, Columbia University left uh, the biosphere, I, I was there for a while and I, I worked as a, uh, uh, more or less as temporarily uh, setting up, uh, documenting all the systems and whatnot and, and getting it ready for whoever took over next. Uh, actually, the, the uh, University of Arizona in, in Tucson is finally uh, taking over there. But after after they, uh, the university left, I had about a year's worth of money. And I decided to sit down and write a novel. So I stayed in Tucson for a while, uh, probably about... Uh, four months after the place closed. And I began to realize that if my money ran, as my money ran out, I was going to have to go to work again and Tucson was not the place to do it. I, I went uh, first to uh, Massachusetts. Uh, a friend offered me a place to write uh, a cabin out in the Berkshires. I stayed there for a little while. And uh, then, uh, from uh, Massachusetts, I went back to Tucson, uh, uh, stayed near my dad for a while. Then uh, I went back to Virginia. I went, actually, I went across country about three or four times and <laughs> finally, finally settled back in this area, uh, got married here, so I stayed. And, and that was when you were in Cuyahoga Falls or just Northeast Ohio generally? Cuyahoga Falls. I settled in Cuyahoga Falls about 14, 15 years ago now. Oh, cool. Um, well, you know, we, we all love Cuyahoga Falls. We're a group of concerned citizens, as you well know, um, more than anything, trying to, trying to create content about the falls and for people in the falls, which is what this podcast has become. Um, and, um, as people who love Cuyahoga Falls, we often like to ask people, um, what are the things that they love about the city? So, so what do you love about Cuyahoga Falls? Uh, primarily the parks. I, I like to walk in the woods, and this is a great place to do that. I, I love the seasons, and nowhere else in the country are the seasons as prominent as they are in this area. Cuyahoga Falls uh, as a city is, is great. I think the people here are wonderful. I would have to agree with that. And that's the endorsement of somebody who's lived all over the country. Yeah, no kidding. A couple times, seems like. 
there and back about five times by my count now. So, um, well, Jim, we want to thank you so much uh, for joining us on the Falls Cast today. Um, again, um, James Lloyd Davis's Shrapnel, um, an anthology of short stories from as far back as the 1970s, um, is available on Amazon.com as a Kindle book. Um, and you can get a paper copy if you're one of those people like me who likes to cuddle up with an actual book in your hand. Um, so make sure you go and check that out. Once again, Jim, thanks so much. Absolutely. You take care, Alex. All right. See you later. Falls Cast is a production of the Falls Free Press in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. Please check out the Falls Free Press at fallsfreepress.com or on social media at facebook.com slash fallsfreepress or at falls underscore free on Twitter or Instagram. We thank you for listening to this episode, which was recorded and edited by Alex Hall. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell your Cuyahoga Falls friends and family so that they can listen as well.